you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. Yes, we're still in Hebrews, and we will be for a while. So, uh, but we've made quite a bit of progress, haven't we? We have made quite a bit of progress through the book of Hebrews. So, you ever bought something that had a lifetime warranty? <laughs> always, so I always wonder what that meant. It was a lifetime of what I'm buying or my lifetime. <laughs> you ever had one that didn't actually live up to what it was supposed to be? <laughs> I call it the lifetime warranty that is not. <laughs> So there's, a, there's the one where you have trouble with the item and you go back to the company and the company's out of business, right? They're out of business and they're probably out of business because their product was no good. But anyway, you don't get your warranty then, but then there's uh, the warranty where lifetime really doesn't mean lifetime. <laughs> it really doesn't mean lifetime to them. You th you're thinking, well, this should last my whole lifetime. But they might have a little bit different view of it. And then there's a lifetime warranty, but it doesn't cover everything, right? So you get a lifetime warranty on certain things, but the things that actually break, if you ever bought a new car and you got a warranty for your car, you know that it doesn't cover tires, brakes, wearable parts, belts, and stuff like that. And so sometimes a lifetime warranty doesn't really turn out to be that good of a deal. But with Jesus, it does. Amen. With Jesus, it does. Hebrews 9 on just the other side of the coin is a powerful teaching on the security of our salvation in Christ. And we've kind of heard everything from the author in the book of Hebrews. I mean, we've heard warnings, very serious warnings that we should take to heart. But we've also seen on the other side that there's tremendous uh, encouragement in the fact that we have an eternal salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, is that Jesus secures for us an eternal redemption. And we'll, we'll head through that in just a little bit. But as far as our review, we've been th going through the book of Hebrews for quite a while now. And you probably know that the theme is that Jesus is greater or better. He's better than anything that we can think of. And the author of the book of Hebrews talks about several things and ways that Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament prophets who were prophets of God and gave us the scriptures that we have today. And yet Jesus was a better prophet than they were. Uh, this, the writer of the book of, of Hebrews says that Jesus is even greater than the mighty angels. And we know that at least one angel defeated 185,000 Syrians in one night. And so he is greater than all the mighty angels. He's greater than Moses, which would have been something that would have taken Jews aback. I mean, they would have thought Jesus, that Moses is just the greatest person, but Jesus exceeds Moses just as a son exceeds the servant is what the book of Hebrews says. And so Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than anything in this world, right? If we only have Jesus, we should be content. And that, that's a truth from the Bible. That's not just the words that we speak because sometimes, maybe not so much in America, but in other countries, everything is stripped away from many Christians. You know, their livelihood, their families stripped away, their freedom to worship God tried to strip away. And so we do believe 
and we teach that Jesus, in Jesus there is contentment, that he is better than even the world. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than anything. And the reason that the writer stresses this so frequently in the book of Hebrews is that he's writing to a group of people who are sliding backwards. They're going backwards in their faith. They're drifting away from their faith. They're showing signs of it by being sluggish and not like what we talked about in Sunday school. We talked about being fervent for the Lord. The Hebrew people were just typical uh, they were just examples of just the opposite of that they were tending to go back they couldn't understand how since Jesus was gone how their sin was going to be atoned for and they thought in order in order for my sin to be covered for me to be forgiven by God I'm going to have to go back to the Old Testament way of sacrificial and so they were headed back to the old sacrificial system and it, it probably wasn't for that reason only. It was probably also because there was persecution of the, of the Christians during that time, right? So why not go back to Judaism where it's safe, where it's an organized, recognized religion by the Roman Empire? And so all of these things indicate that uh, they were headed back. They were drifting away. They were neglecting their salvation. They were, as the common term, would put it backsliding in the faith. And so he gives several strong warnings that they need to snap out of it and wake up basically and, and rest, your, uh, rest all your hopes on Jesus who is our anchor, right? Uh, turn to Jesus, the anchor of our soul is one of the lessons that we have. And so we started getting into why is Jesus better? Well, we've learned that his priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Is, is, and the reason for that is that he is of the order of Melchizedek, not of the order of the Levite priest. And we came across this verse, which maybe you want to underline. It's a little, few pages back probably for you, but Hebrews 7.25, that I think kind of encapsulates what we've been talking about so far. But it's Hebrews 7.25. says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We need a high priest such as Jesus, as Jesus, and we have one in Jesus. We need an exalted high priest, one who meets our every need, and Jesus meets our every need and by that I don't I don't necessarily mean and speaking of physical things that he provides for us although he does that as well but every spiritual need that we have every spiritual blessing he provides for us and if you want proof of that go to Ephesians chapter 1 and you'll see that every spiritual blessing that we have has come through Jesus Christ and so today we're going to be talking about Jesus being the one who secures our eternal redemption. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is the one who secures our eternal redemption? What if it were up to us to secure our eternal redemption? We would be lost, wouldn't we? We wouldn't know where to begin. It would be fraught with sin and all different kind of bad motives. And so this week we're going to be talking about that in this uh, 
Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of that, if you don't mind. Get our legs working a little again and, and properly acknowledge God as uh, the author of the scriptures. So let's read this. It's kind of a long section today, and so when we go through it, we'll be kind of summarizing some of these things. I wish we had time just to go down through verse by verse, but we would, we would be here a long time. But let's start with verse 11. We'll read all of the verses and then we'll put it into a form where we can understand everything that's being said. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that, re that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and hyssop and sprinkled both on the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not only to deal, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these words today long and complicated sentences and we're trying to understand them so we pray that you would give us understanding and give us insight into the scriptures today that we may understand them and meditate upon them until we know them 
And I know that we can't do all of that this morning, but I pray that you would be with me as I try to put this in a form where we can understand better, that I would do it in a simple and clear, clear way. And uh, pray that you would give us wisdom uh, as well, uh, and the wisdom to know how to use this new information that we received today. And so we ask that you be with us as we go through this. Guide us and direct us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God has always wanted to be with his people, and uh, he's made that evident down through the scriptures. And I think we've talked about this before, but of course, originally he created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden, a place where they could have a relationship with God together with him and enjoy the fellowship of God on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And that must have been incredible. But we know that we lost that because of the sin of Adam and Eve and they were kicked out of the garden. And, and ever since then, man has been far away from God and God has wanted nothing more than for man to draw closer to him. And so he has provided several different ways down through the centuries for people to have some kind of a relationship with him. And following the Garden of Eden, I think probably the tab tabernacle was the first thing that he provided. And we talked about that last week. That was the earthly tabernacle that we talked about last week. And if you remember, the tabernacle had certain portions and parts to it. It had an outer courtyard where people could, and the priests could gather to do the sacrifices. There was a bronze altar which, you appeared, which appeared first at the gate, and that's where the animals were slaughtered. And then there was a bronze laver, and that's where the priests would wash themselves. Before they took this blood, they would take it into the holy place and they would sprinkle it upon the different uh, pieces of furniture that were in there and the pieces of furniture were the altar of incense the table of the showbread and also the candlestick the golden lampstand but then only once a year would the priest take blood uh, for the congregation and for himself and enter the holy of holies and in the holy of holies there was the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat representing the, the presence of God and he would offer the sacrifice for the people there. And so all of this is an attempt for God to get close to his people because he is a holy God and we are a sinful people. And so that is difficult for God to do. He cannot tolerate sin. And so there must have been these sacrifices uh, for the sin. And so uh, that's not the end of the story, by the way. <laughs> The tabernacle and then the temple temple was a very similar so the description is going to be basically the same as for the tabernacle but it, it was a way for men to be close to God and then finally he sent us his very own son and in John chapter 1 I believe it's around verse 14 it says uh, that it says that uh, that Jesus came and dwelt among us or the word came and dwelt among us and that word dwelt actually means tabernacled. He came and he tabernacled among us. And so he was with us. And then eventually he is within us, right? As we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is given to us and dwells within us. And so we can have that close personal relationship. That's what all of this is about, receiving Christ so that we can have a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is intent on securing 
for his people an eternal redemption. He has a plan for our rescue, guys. Amen. He has a plan for our rescue. He is not out there, uh, oh no, man sin, now what am I going to do? He's had a plan from the very beginning that he was going to save a people for his own possession and that he would secure for them an eternal redemption. And I keep re repeating that word secure because I think it's so important in this work, that this verse, actually that's from uh, verse 12. Jesus secures for his people an eternal redemption. What do you think of when you think of secure? Well, we talk a lot about security, don't we? We talk a lot about security in our churches, in our homes, online security. It's a feeling of knowing that you are safe from outside attack. attack. Uh, it's, it's to obtain something, to make safe. I think it means to obtain something forever, permanently. That's what this secure means. He wants to obtain our salvation and it be secure forever, safe and secure. Like in a bank, right? You put your money in a bank and you hope and you pray that it's safe and secure and it normally is. This is even better than that. Jesus wants to secure our salvation. It's an eternal redemption. And eternal, by the way, means re eternal. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have it one day and you can lose it the other day, right? So we, we reject the idea that you can lose your salvation. And this is one of the reasons why it's called an eternal redemption or an eternal salvation. I think John makes it very clear in John 5.22, 5.24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from life to death. You guys, if you are born again believers, have already passed from life, from death to life. You have already passed from death to life. I'll make sure I get that clear. I think I said it wrong. You have passed from death to eternal life. And eternal life is how long? Forever, Forever right? So it, it's not going to end. It's an eternal redemption. Redemption itself just means that he has purchased us and he has used the most expensive thing in the world, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. The most expensive thing in the world, the very precious blood of Jesus Christ, has purchased us. And if that does not obtain for us eternal salvation, then what price must be paid? There is no greater price, right? There is no pr greater price. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right, Bill? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So how does Jesus do this? Is it, is it important for us to know how he does this? Well, I think it, it is important that we know how he does this. So if you're taking notes, there are going to be a few points here that you can write down. But first of all, Jesus secures our salvation through his own eternal priesthood. And this is something that we've talked about a little bit uh, already, so we, we don't have to say too much about it. But he is a priest who himself is an eternal priest. There is no beginning or ending to Jesus Christ. He goes on forever because he is God himself. And so he is always going to be there to intercede for us. And I'll read that verse one more time, Hebrews 7, 25, because it's so critical. It says, consequently, he, Jesus, 
is able to save to the uttermost, that means forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the great promise, the great hope of Jesus being an eternal priest for us, is that he always intercedes for us. The question is, I guess, is that are we drawing near to God? <laughs> are we drawing near to God? Even if you're a Christian here today, we should be drawing closer to God. Amen? We should be growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more like him, and drawing to him. I think that's what it, that word uttermost also means. It not only means forever, but it means he is going to save us completely. He's going to save us body, soul, and spirit. And he's going to do that through uh, working in our life and bringing us into a relationship with him. So are you drawing near to God today? Can you say that you are drawing near to God today? It's my prayer that you are today. Then he also secures an eternal redemption for us through the offering of himself through the spirit as a sacrifice. If you remember in the Old Testament times in the earthly tabernacle, Sacrifices had to be offered over and over again, right? You can imagine what that would have been like if you yourself had to offer a sacrifice for every sin that you committed. First of all, it would be incredibly difficult for us to offer that many sacrifices. Secondly, I don't think that our conscience would ever really feel clean. We would always feel like there's something that we didn't account for. But Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice is a one-time sacrifice for all who would believe and trust in him. Just one sacrifice, right? So the Jews in this, in this letter, they were mistaken thinking that they could go back and offer sacrifices again and that work. It would not work, right? In fact, in, in verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 26, I think, uh, there's a verse that says, uh, if, we continue, uh, if we continue sinning, if we, if we continue deliberately sinning, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What does that mean? Sounds like it, to the average person who, who reads that, it might say, well, if I commit a sin deliberately, then you know, there's no sacrifice left for me, I'm lost. But if we look at it from the perspective of the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's just merely saying, if you deliberately sin, if you reject Jesus after you have heard about him, there's no longer any sacrificial system for you to go back to. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. And so he offers himself as a sacrifice, a one-time sacrifice presented to God. He is one a sacrifice without blemish and without sin, one that is perfect for us, one that, G that the Lord God will accept readily because of its uh, sinless nature. He secures for his people an eternal redemption through the offer of himself. He does it also by dying and shedding of his blood. It's clear from the scripture that we read here today that without the shedding of the blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That is verse 22. There must be some kind of sacrifice. There must be some kind of death. Sin always brings forth death. God said to Adam and Eve, 
that when they sinned in the garden that it would lead to their death, and it did lead to their death. But without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And it also says in our scripture that we read here today that the blood of bull and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of a red heifer do not remove the stain of sin. Those things will only clean the person externally. They don't remove the sin and the guilt our conscience experiences when we do sin. I don't know if you've ever carried your sin around with you before, but it's a terrible feeling to have that guilt upon yourself. And that's what the people who this letter was written to were experiencing. They had sinned and they thought there's no sacrifice for the sin because Jesus has already died and gone away. Now I need to go back and offer a sacrifice for my sin. They were carrying the guilt around with them and they felt like they had to do something about their sin. We do that as well. Even those of us who are Christians, we sin and we think we have to make it up some way, but we can't. It's only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gift of free eternal salvation that we can have freedom from our guilt. What can take my, away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Amen. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So these Old Testament sacrifices, they don't remove this, the guilt from our sin, but Jesus does. Jesus is better. He takes away even the guilt. So I might tell you today, you know, if you're living with guilt today, you have some feelings of guilt for some reason. I don't know, have any idea what they might be is that you do not have to carry that guilt around with you. Jesus has paid the price. He has paid it fully. Everything that we need for our salvation, including a clear conscience. And you can today, if you go to Jesus Christ and repent of your sin, have a clear conscience today. And you do not have to carry that, that around. Jesus secures our eternal redemption and it even includes our guilty consciences. So he's, he secures our eternal redemption also through a better covenant. This is a better covenant. The old covenant was a covenant that the people made with Moses and Moses made with God. And that was basically the sacrificial system. There, was, there were requirements on the people that they were supposed to do. There were requirements that God was supposed to do. And it just never did work out. It never worked out, not because the old testament sacrificial system was bad not because the old covenant was bad but because we in our sinful nature were unable to keep our part of the agreement so how is the the new covenant one that is better than the old covenant the new covenant is the one in which god meets all the requirements of the covenant for us so it cannot fail yay <laughs> That's great news, right? Amen. We're entering into a covenant. When you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're entering into a covenant with him in which he provides all the conditions, all the requirements of that so it cannot fail. We cannot fall away from that. So let me remind you of this new covenant by reading Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 again. And listen to this. Listen for the I wills. Just like we did, I think we did in Sunday school. It was a different subject, but listen to the I wills. 
Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So stopping just a minute, this is a covenant similar to a marriage covenant. It's often compared to a, a marriage and he uses marital language here by calling himself their husband. He says the problem is that we broke it. We can't, keep, we can't even keep the Ten Commandments, right? We can't keep the Ten Commandments. We broke the commandments and we did even worse than breaking the Ten Commandments that they did back in that time. Go on, I'm going ahead reading. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. I will, I will, I will, God says. I will make this with the house of Israel and Judah. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. It's a covenant where Jesus has fulfilled all of the requirements of the covenant for us. We simply follow Jesus. Amen? We believe and follow Jesus. And so this is the new covenant in his blood that he has shed for us and he brings all of this as a sacrifice to God through a perfect tent, a more perfect tent. Last week we talked about the earthly tent. This week is talking about a heavenly tent. The earthly tabernacle was just a shadow of the heavenly or spiritual things. I hope that's clear, but Moses was shown on the mountain some kind of picture or diagram of what the tabernacle should be. He made that, but the pattern was a picture or representation from heaven. So that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he takes his blood. He takes it and sacrifices. He enters into the holy place. They are sprinkled with blood. He enters into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, and he in heaven is sprinkling his blood and the Father is receiving that, and that's why we can have a relationship with God. Verse 24 of our reading today, For Christ is entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. <laughs> We have Jesus sitting at the right hand of God on our behalf. He's there sitting, interceding for us. And somehow this picture, I don't know if I can make this clear, very clear, but there's this heavenly tent where God is sitting and is symbolically represented by the Ark of the Covenant and Jesus goes and he pre presents his blood there on our behalf. 
And so he brings us to God when he does that. And in essence, we are with God spiritually, right? And we know that's true because the scripture says that when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ, he sends the Holy Spirit to reside, reside in our hearts. So what I'm saying is these are two pictures of the same thing. L let me read Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, and see if this helps clear it up a little bit. But our hearts are where the Holy Spirit res resides. Okay, here's verse 4. For God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this section of scripture says that when we believe and trust in Jesus Christ and he gives us the Holy Spirit, we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our spirits are in our heart, but they are also intertwined with God's in heaven. Does that make sense? I think that's incredible. I think that's amazing that we have that closeness uh, to God. And Robin prayed today in his prayer. He's, he thanked God for our ability to be close to God. And I think, yes, yes. That's what this whole thing is about. We can be close to God. If we are distant from God, it's only our fault. It's only our fault. What the scripture says for us to do is to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So what, is a, what does all this mean? What are some implications we can draw from this? First of all, we have redemption from all transgressions, from all sins. Look at verse number 15. Since a death has occurred, that's the, that's the death of Jesus Christ, that redeems them from, their, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So since Jesus has died, taken that to the cross, and taken that and been buried with that and rosen, risen from the dead, we have redemption from transgressions. We have the forgiveness of all our sins. Good news, right? That's very good news. We have forgiveness for all our sins. As a result of that, we should be the most forgiving of all people. Let me say that again. We should be the most forgiving of all people. In fact, God expects us to be forgiving. In fact, he says if we can't, are unable to forgive, we will not be forgiven. Amen. So we better take this forgiveness stuff seriously, right? Yes. We better take it seriously. We should be the most forgiving of others. And forgiveness, let me, let me tell you what forgiveness is not, the silent treatment. Someone sinned against you and you give them the silent treatment. You ever done that before? I have done that before. I, I'm an expert at this, believe me. Ask Darla. I can be an expert at this. The silent treatment is just your way of punishing the person who has offended you. Any kind of punishment of punishing someone is not forgiveness. If you don't talk to them, we're, we're given clear admonition in God's word what to do when someone forgives, as uh, someone has uh, offended us. It's in Matthew 18, verse 15. You should go home and read it. It says that if someone has offended us, we go to them 
and confront them face to face and tell them their sin. And if they repent, then we forgive them. If not, we get two or three other people to go along with them. And our whole goal is for them to admit their sin and repent of that sin. But if they don't, even when two or three go to them, they take it before the church. And if the church, if they come before the church and the church decides you should forgive this person, uh, they have come to you as scripture has said, you should come to them, you should forgive them. If there still is no forgiveness uh, or, if, or if the trespass still exists, then it says to excommunicate them from the church. They're not truly Christians if they, if they cannot forgive. And so I, I, I got off track a little bit, but th this is serious. We need to forgive each other, silent treatment, gossiping about them, Revenge, punishment are not forgiving. So one of the results of Jesus' actions in securing our salvation is that we become very forgiving people. And we also, we have a pure conscience. We're not driven by guilt. I've done this as well. I confess, sometimes we can be driven by guilt. We do things because we, we, we do it out of obligation. We do it out of duty. Uh, we carry our guilt around with us and it affects our relationships. Lay that at the feet of Jesus. Lay that at the feet of that guilt at the feet of Jesus. He has paid the price even for it. And you can have a clear conscience. What are the end results of Jesus' action of securing our salvation? We have a promised eternal inheritance. Verse number 15. Because of Jesus, we have a promised eternal inheritance. This should get us excited, right? Amen. This should get us excited. So many times we are focused on the world and everything that is going on in the world. And we do need, we do need as Christians to be aware of what's going on in the world. But we should not be driven by what's happened in the world. We should not be attached to this world or the things of this world. We should have our eyes focused on heaven and focused on our eternal inheritance. So many times we're more concerned about our 401k than we are what we're laying up in heaven, right? And I'm not saying don't have a 401k. You should have a 401k, but we're more concerned about that than we are about what we are laying up in heaven. And I think many people, I've mentioned this before, think heaven is just kind of the same for everybody, but the way I read scripture is that People who are faithful in this life will be rewarded for their faithfulness in some way that it's hard for us to describe, but I believe that. He has secured for us an eternal redemption. And you know what? He's coming back. He's coming back. Not this time to judge us, but to judge the world, but he will come back and save us from the judgment of the world. So I hope that you're encouraged today. I hope when someone says, yes, we believe in eternal security, you have a little bit better idea of why this is not all inclusive of what we could talk about eternal security. But I believe Jesus, the high priest, the eternal high priest has secured salvation for us and that he will never let us go. He will never forsake us. He will always be there for us. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for uh, just your faithfulness to us. And when we commit ourselves to you, you commit yourself to us just as much, even more ferociously. And uh, you will not lose us, but you will take all of your people into this promised inheritance that we have. And so we thank you for that. We worship you for that. If there's any here who don't know Christ, we pray that they would surrender their life to Christ today. If there's any Christian here who is keeping part of their life back from you, we pray that they would surrender that to you today. You are worthy of all of our worship. Help us not to be focused on things and material things, but to be focused on the kingdom and on the king himself. Help us to make you priority in our life, number one. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.